First of all, we're going to look at several different stories throughout the Bible because we want to tie together a certain characteristic of our God. <clears throat> There's something I think uh, very important we can learn about Him, His expe- expectations of what goes on in this earth, and several well-known stories that you may not look at as being linked or have some sense of uh, similarity to them. But in Genesis chapter 18, it says that there were three Men, that's the what it, how it's a, it's written in um, verse two. Verse two, he, Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, and lo, three men stood by him. That word translated there is almost never translated as men. As we read farther in this chapter, we realize it's the Lord and two angels that come to visit Abraham. They come to visit Abraham and tell him that this time next year. Sarah is going to have a baby. And that's not the, the story that we're studying. When you get to verse 16, after these two angels and the Lord, they've eaten a meal with Abraham. They have delivered this word that Sarah is going to have this promised child, this covenant, this miracle child, because Abraham's 99, Sarah is 90, and they're going to have a baby. Right after that, in verse 16, the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. You'll get the picture. They're walking away from Abraham's tent, his dwelling. They're walking toward Sodom and a discussion arises. The Lord said in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed of him. Verse 20, the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. They start walking in that direction. And as they're walking, Abraham is one gutsy fellow. He asks the God of the universe, if there were 50 righteous in Sodom, would you spare the city? Would you save it? We, if you've been around your Bible much, you you know God's answer. He he agrees and he says, I would would spare it. That picks up in verse 26 where the Lord says, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Get a picture of the language that the Lord is using. He tells Abraham that if I find 50 there that are righteous, I'll spare the whole city because the city was righteous. He's not saying that the whole city has to be counted righteous. He is declaring to Abraham for the sake of the 50 that bear my name, that believe in me, that are righteous. Now, there's something you find in that verse, in that declaration, that is missing in a lot of our country today. Listen carefully to the language used in our world, and people, church people, put forth the idea that we're all God's kids, that God, He views us all the same. Now, in our creation, when He made us, He did make us all the same with our abilities, our, our, our choices, the things we get to choose. But you start to learn about our God that if you reject 
what he has provided as a way to get to him, the sacrifice of his son, because he did love the whole world. And in loving the whole world, he provided a way to make amends. That the blood of Jesus, if applied to your life, makes you just, it makes you righteous, it makes you pure and holy. So that you are able, that you are justified to meet the Lord. Now, in that picture, we know not everybody makes that choice. We work as hard as we can through these words to convince people you need to make this choice. For those that don't. Some of those places, it gets really bad. It gets really bad. Sodom and Gomorrah, there's actually five of these cities. It it focuses on these two. But it got bad enough that the Lord came and He sent these two angels to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, before that happens, we have this conversation. And Abraham, shall we say, he is engaging in what a generalization some people think of in the Jewish race. He starts, would you, would you save him for 50? The next couple, would you save him for 45? If, if there were 30, would, would you save him, Lord? And if I could do a very good New York Jewish Bronx accent, you get the picture of Abraham here, and he is, if we can say it, he's Jewing down God. Would you save them for 20? When you get down to verse 32, he says, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak, but yet this once. Peradventure, 10 shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. What are we learning about the nature of our God as we look at this conversation? Abraham keeps shooting that number lower and lower. And the Lord always agrees. Now, we've all read ahead, and we know what happens. These two angels go into Sodom and Gomorrah to bring Lot and his family out. And we know that when they're there, those angels talk to Lot, Lot's wife, his two daughters. When he goes to talk to the son-in-laws, the husbands of those two daughters, it says that they thought they were telling idle tales. This notion that God was going to overthrow the city, they, they wouldn't even respond. He th- they thought Lot was telling idle tales. How many righteous were there in Sodom? There weren't many. We read it in the story of Abraham in his conversation. He left off at ten. If there was ten, would you save it? The characteristic, the principle you were seeming to learn from our Lord there was just one. God would do something to save that person and if nothing else, he would save the city for that person's sake. God does not look at us all the same in our, when it makes a difference what we believe toward him. We're going to see that in other stories. Now in this story of Lot is in chapter 19 when the angels go there <clears throat> and in reading this story, There's some hard things in here to let your eyes pass over. What the men of this city wanted to do to the angels that must have just appeared as men, they came to Lot's door. Do you remember what Lot told the men of the city when they knocked on the door and they said, give us those men that came in here? Lot offered his two daughters. 
And there's a part of us that we kind of, we may read over it, we may get very queasy, we probably should. There's some terrible culture in this city. But if we skip ahead to the New Testament, keep a finger right here. I want to read one verse in Second Peter that tells us something about this story that is important. Keep a finger here. Second Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Sometimes we think that some of these stories are only mentioned one place and there's no other information, but in that obscure place, maybe in the Old Testament, but many, many times, the New Testament, Jesus, the disciples, they spoke about these events. Second Peter chapter 2, and in verse 5, it says that God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. He's describing an event where Noah and his family were righteous. And what did God do with them? God waited almost maybe somewhere around a hundred years till they built that boat. Tells us that his kids were 500 when they started building the boat. And it was was a hundred years later when the flood came. Somewhere in there was the amount of time it took for the flood and God waited because his righteous had to be protected. Verse 6. He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So there's a warning in what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, but look at verse 7. He delivered just Lot vexed with the filthy filthy conversation of the wicked. When it says that he delivered just Lot, that does not mean that he, the word just means only one person made it. Mom, I ate just one cookie. I ran just one mile. It's not using it in that sense. It is using the word just as in justified, as in righteous, as in some sense of holiness. So what's Second Peter? What does Peter say about the story of Lot that when those angels went in there to get him out what was the spiritual state of Lot there were some bad things going on and these verses tell us look at verse 8 for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing in hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds Lot was considered by God righteous. And it's why those angels went in there to get him out. But what does it say about Lot spending that time in what what he saw in that city? What he heard in that city. It says it vexed his soul. It grated on him. And that should all of us. There are things that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that is a part of our culture. After reading Genesis 19, I have to conclude, it is not to anywhere near the level now of what it was in here. Sodom and Gomorrah had a handful of righteous people. The United States, we have some horrible things going on, but we do have a few marks. There, are, there is still some righteous people in this nation. It's pretty easy for us to believe that. That's why it's a little difficult. It's a little hard for me to hear When people say, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he has to judge America. Well, we're all going to be judged. 
But what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah was the wrath of God being poured out. And any time that happens, God performs a certain act. If there are people with his name on them, he goes in and he brings them out. The Bible clearly teaches that God's wrath, it doesn't mean that we won't, our car will never break down and we may never have difficulties in this life. We're talking about the indignation, God's righteous anger. And when that gets poured into the earth, there's clear teaching. He moves his kids out of the way first before that happens. Now, go back to Genesis 19. <clears throat> so, we know now it's not a crazy notion of John, and I have crazy notions, but this isn't one of them, that Lot was righteous, that he was just. The Bible tells us, we found it in our scripture, these angels go in there to get him out of there. And look at verse 14. Lot went out, spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, those angels came in the evening, and here it is, when the morning arose, Lot is still there. He's still throwing things into the suitcase. They're getting stuff out of the mattress, whatever it is. Verse 15, that when the morning arose, the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife, thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of this city. There's a very important principle found in this story. And it's down in verse 22. The angels tell Lot, Haste thee, escape thither. And this is the angels' words, I cannot do anything until thou become thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. That's In the previous verses, Lot says, Don't destroy all these cities. Spare that little Zor over there. I'll go over there so I at least I have a place to live. And the angels agree. So do you know why the five cities of the plain, not all of them were consumed? Because Lot told the angels, let me go there. And the angel says, for your sake, that city will be spared. Contrast what you're hearing, the picture we're painting, with what you hear in our culture today. That this nebulous, Never seen, he never speaks. We really don't know much about God out there. And he looks at us all the same. That's a lie. He cares, it matters, whether or not you believe in him, trust him, bear his name. Yes, he treats us all the same. He is a just God in his judgment towards us. But if you have made a decision for him to believe in the things that he says and the manner that he provided to escape wrath, that is the blood of Jesus cleansing us, he looks at us differently. Here, the angel specifically tells Lot, we came here to destroy this city. but We can't do it until you guys are out. Lot, he wants to go to a little city and they, say, they end up even agreeing, we'll spare that little city, you can go there. Think how this is from God's perspective. And it started out with Abraham saying, would you spare that place for 50? God said yes, and he worked all the way down. And we come to realize that he didn't spare the city. 
But that wrath didn't get poured out until the number of his kids came out of it. He did spare this little town of Zor because Lot was going to go there. Learning something about the character of our God. What do you have in your life that you need God to show up in, to perform? Don't judge your own life. Well, Aunt Mimi once thought God was going to help her and she died. Uncle Joe needed something from God, but he never got it. I don't know anything about those people. Maybe they weren't believers. All I know is what God treats people in the Scripture. That He does do things for His beloved. There is something to learn from this. Let's skip to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Another well-known story. When Moses led the Israelites, came out of Egypt, they spent their 40 years in the wilderness, and now they're going to go across into Jordan finally. Excuse me, into Israel. Into the land that had been promised to them for several hundred years, starting with Abraham. They're now going in under the leadership of Joshua, and Joshua sends a couple of spies in. That's what Joshua chapter 2 is about. He sends the spies into the land. And look at verse 2. Um, it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. These two men that here initially the Bible calls spies, later they'll be called messengers. They just happen to end up at a place called uh, Rahab's house, where she lives. And the Bible calls her a harlot. She obviously was not living the way that she should. However, we're going to see something about this woman. At some point, at some point in Rahab's life, she made a decision about the God of the people that were out there crossing the Jordan, getting ready to surround her city. It's a very similar picture. God is sending Joshua in to march around Jericho seven times. And God is going to destroy that city. We do not learn that Joshua is responsible for killing, for destroying that city. They, they had a part, they did what they were told, but walking around the thing seven times doesn't kill everybody. They obeyed God and God brought those walls down. What I'm pointing out is this is God's looking at Jerusalem, or Jericho, and he sees somebody in there that needs to be brought out. The two spies that Joshua sends in, it says that they end up at Rahab's house. And I want you to see out of Rahab's mouth what she thought of the people that were inside of Jericho and what she thought of those Israelites that were getting ready to march around her city. Look at verse 11. Jer uh, Rahab is speaking to these spies. And she says, As soon as we heard that these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. She's describing the fact that God is destroying kings before the Israelites. 
that they heard, she said, how the Red Sea parted and you guys walked across. And that was 40 years before Rahab is talking here. These enemies of Israel, the Amorites, they still have in their heads, God goes before these people. They also heard how just recently they came across Jordan and what happened? The priests went down with the ark and Jordan split and they walked across on dry ground. Rahab says our hearts are completely melted. Look at the end of verse 11. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. What do those words sound like? I can tell you that to my ears, when somebody confesses that the Lord your God He is God of heaven, of of all the earth. That sounds like a confession of faith to me. In the New Testament, we learn we're supposed to confess the Lord with our mouth, believe in our heart. This lady has both. She believes that the God of these people, that He is going to kick out all of these inhabitants of the land. That's what she says here in these verses. I know that the land belongs to you, she says. And she confesses that your God, He is the God of heaven, and of all the earth. I don't know about you, to me that sounds like a believer. We tend to think of Rahab as, it only describes her as a harlot. But once you get to this point, we don't find any biblical evidence that the Bible views Rahab as continuing in that lifestyle. Some point in here, maybe it was the fear of the Lord when she hears The God of these people, He is bringing them in here and they're going to destroy us all. Something changed her heart and she confesses to these spies to the point that she could have been killed. The king of Jericho comes and says, give me those men that came to your house. We know they came to your house. Our messengers told us so. And what does she do? She says, they're not here. She hides them. Why would she do that? She could have had them killed She could have pointed out their whereabouts and they would have been taken away, but she doesn't. She takes their side. She wants to be numbered among those Israelites that are outside, even though she is surrounded by unbelief. Look at verse 12. Therefore I pray, swear unto me by the Lord, she calls him Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. And the men answer in the next few verses that they'll trade their lives for her. And they tell her, we are coming back and our God is going to destroy this city. You had better get everybody that you love, everybody that you want saved in this house. This is the only house that will not burn. You and I live on the this side of this story. We know exactly how this turns out. They march around seven times. On the seventh day, they march around they march around once each for seven days. On the seventh day, they march seven. And God brings those walls down and they go in and they destroy that city except for one household. Picture in your mind a large city. One house is saved. 
now it's a little more, it's, a, it's more difficult for me to think that those two spies that went in, that they just happened to end up at Rahab's house. They ended up there because God knew somebody was righteous in that city. And before he destroyed it, what was he going to do? He was going to bring them out to safety. Go to Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua 6, we finally get to the conclusion of Rahab in this story. In Joshua 6, verse 24, they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein. Only the silver, the gold, the vessels of silver and gold, excuse me, the brass and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab, the harlot, alive, and her father's household, and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day. What that means is, unto the day that this was written. Rahab, when they brought her out, and she would end up marrying a guy named Salmon. They would have a son. That son's name was Boaz. Boaz and Ruth got married, and they had a son named Obed. Obed had Jesse, and Jesse had eight boys, one of them being David. This lady was the great-grandmother of David. It was no accident that those spies happened to be in Rahab's house. I'm not saying that those spies even knew what they were doing. God orchestrated the events because God, the ruler of the universe, had knowledge of who was all inside of Jericho. And he knew that Rahab thought these words, Your God is the God of heaven and of earth. And He is going to give all this land to you people. That confession defines her as a believer. And because of that, the Bible takes time out and it describes the entire story of getting one righteous person and her family out. There are people today that, that they don't like the Old Testament because there's a lot of destruction, a lot of killing, a lot of... Some people even use the word genocide. They want to accuse God of genocide, that He just kills whole races of people. There's something we've learned about the character of God. It, those descriptions do sound hard for us. We've all grown up here in the United States where there has been peace, prosperity, and it's difficult for us to realize or to picture an entire culture, not one righteous person. We've learned something about God. If He destroys an, an entire culture, how many righteous were in there? Not one. If there is a righteous believer in there, and God is the author of the destruction coming, He pulls them out first. Lot had to be pulled. The angels literally grabbed him by their hand and drug him out. Rahab, God makes sure that his messengers from Israel come to her house so that she can make that covenant. They, the information can get passed. You know, the Bible does initially call them spies, but if they're military spies, what information did they bring back to Joshua that helped Joshua forge a game plan to break down Jericho? There really wasn't any military information. 
He didn't say that that west flank over there is weak, attack over there. Joshua didn't learn anything from the spies. They came out, and God told him to do this strange thing about walking around the city seven times. So why were those spies sent in? The nature of our God, he doesn't leave anybody behind. Before his wrath gets poured out, if you are a believer in him, out you come. Let's go to Ezekiel. On our way toward the, toward the New Testament, there's a few verses that reinforce what we're talking about here. If we've really found something about our God. Ezekiel 22, look at verse 30. This is also a text in the scripture where God is talking about judgment. He's talking about judging all of Israel. And look at what God says about judging the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. I sought for how many men? He sought for a man, singular, that, excuse me, among them, that should make up the hedge, stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. And we know what happened to Israel during some of these times. They got removed off the land because they backslid so severely. God was patient with them. Finally, he brought the Babylonians and removed them with Nebuchadnezzar, and they went back to Babylon for 70 years until they learned a lesson. But what does this verse tell us about God before that happened? It says he looked throughout the land. And he was looking for one righteous person. And there is an encouraging aspect of this to me. If you see a problem in our culture, and you, and if you're like, you know, we, all of us, we discuss things after Bible study and after church. We're pretty like-minded people, and that's kind of why we gather together. We look into our culture and we see pretty much the same problems, and we want to change it, or we sure wish it, wish it would change. Should we be in complete despair that it cannot change? How many people does God need to make a majority before He would enact some behavior? It seems to be He's looking for one person. Somebody that He can trust that will put His words in their mouth, put their behavior in, you know, His behavior in their feet, God can do anything and he, he needs one. He saved the entire, or He made possible salvation for the entire human race. After Adam sinned, He brought it back through the second Adam, through one man, His Son. His Son that put on human flesh. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 5. We're learning something about the character of our Lord. Jeremiah chapter 5. <clears throat> Jeremiah 5, verse 1. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know. Sounds like somebody's looking. And seek in the broad places thereof if you can find a man. Again, 
singular. If there be any that executeth judgment and seeketh the truth, I will pardon it. Nothing else. This study on this idea, it, it not only gives you hope for being able to change a nation, change a culture, change a large group, it really should inspire a person to action. The prayer of one, the actions of one, God does not diminish that and He does not count it lightly. Here he says, go and look throughout the whole earth. And he's painting the picture of search. Send somebody. Look and search out the narrow, the broad places. Look, find, ask some questions. Is there one person here that is righteous, that executes my judgment? And he says, if you can find one, I'll pardon it. Our God is... uh, Have you ever felt alone? Remember when Elijah said he thought he was the only guy serving the Lord. He was in a cave by himself. He was on the run for his life. And he thought he was the only one. Now God told him, I've got several hundred more that have never bowed the knee to these false gods. But let's say you were the last Mohican. The last person that believed righteously. What we're finding out is That person should never give up. When we went to Israel, our tour guide, who was a little different, we went past Masada, which over there is this enormous high mountain plateau. And up on top of it, Herod, the Roman in Roman times, had built a palace, a fort up there. When the Jews were being expelled from Israel, right after Jesus' time, when, the, when Jerusalem had been burnt, destroyed, there was a group of Jews that escaped out and they ran and they overtook this Masada place. They took it over from the Romans and they held out there for several more years while the Romans built an encampment or an embankment to get up to them to retake it. And the last people that were up there surviving, they, they didn't want to put their hands, their lives, in the hands of the Romans. So when the Romans on the last day broke through, those Jewish people that were had held out, they leapt to their deaths off that mountain. Took their own lives. I knew this story before we went over there. I was looking forward to seeing this. And as we were growing near, drawing near on the bus ride to this place, I heard our our tour guide who is a Jewish person, he was born and raised there. He was a general in their army. He had no desire to show any tourist Masada. And all of us, we, we were stunned. I, I asked him, what, why, would, why would we not go there? And he said, those people committed suicide. They took, and it's not just the, what, the act of suicide, he said, God could have used one, two, twenty, fifty of them, maybe. Who knows? In his plan to save Israel. I never thought of it that way. He, Most foreigners go there and they portray and they look up to that giant mountain and they think of those people as heroes. And they did some heroic things. But in his mind, in this Jewish person's mind, and not I don't think most Jews think this way, but he did. He thought it was a national disgrace that they would not fight to the end. 
because of this principle. God needs one. And it's easy for us. I'm not condemning anybody. It's easy for us to sit here in our recliners, soft air conditioning, nice heated rooms to point to that. I'm not. I'm just pointing to what this tour guide told us. It does put things in perspective. If you really do believe, God will show up. I'm holding back, going down a rabbit trail of a story of George Washington where God fought for him. But it's, it almost needs to be told. Washington was completely surrounded at the uh, uh, Manhattan in New York, in that island, Long Island. And the British had him completely surrounded. He, he obviously couldn't escape by water. The British owned all uh, the seas. They had all the boats. He was outnumbered five to one. And his, they were growing weaker and weaker by the day. The British were growing stronger by the day because their ships were bringing more supplies and more men every day. Washington's lieutenant came and asked him, after describing the situation, what can we possibly do? This was in August of 1776. The previous month, 55 men had got together and signed a document, the Declaration of Independence, which at the end of it, it says that we pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. And the reason they pledged that was because they had a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. They had just signed this. The nation's founding civil document said that they expected God to show up and fight on their behalf with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. In other words, God's going to step in for us. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. When Washington's lieutenant asked him, what can we possibly do? Washington was staring off into the distance. And he turned to this young man and he said eight words. We will rely on the protection of divine providence. The British did not attack that night and they did not attack the next day. And that following night, Washington got his men in boats and they went across under the cover of darkness to escape. That was more than dangerous. Had one of the horses whinnied, had one of the cannons rocked and made a sound, the British hear that when you're out in the water, you can't dig a foxhole and you can't run very fast to outrun a bullet. There's nowhere to go. But all through that night, they made trip after trip across that river. They only had a few boats. It was a miracle that no sound was made. The sun is coming up in Washington and some of the others still have not escaped the island. The they recorded in their journals. And there was a scout who was a ways off and he could see both the British camp and the American camp. And he records that a strange fog came up out of the river. And it covered the British camp peculiarly and in a peculiar manner, the American camp. They said in their journals, we could not discern a man from three feet away. The morning fog was not burned off by the sun. It stayed there until noon, until Washington and his men finally got across. He was the last one out of the boat. And as he disappeared over the horizon, the fog lifted, the British saw, they fired off a few volleys that hurt no one, and 
Washington escaped to fight another day. He would rely on the protection of divine providence. God does intervene for the believer. It makes a difference. I want to end with the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 11. Matthew 18, verse 11. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Now we're talking about salvation and what happens if someone is not saved. The difference between salvation and not salvation is salvation and wrath. John chapter 3 tells us that if you're not saved, if you reject Jesus, there is wrath abiding on that person. The only way to get out from under it is to accept Christ. So Jesus is saying He came to save that which was lost. Verse 12, How think ye, in other words, how does your minds work, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went astray, that went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What's the mind of God? Always thinking of one more. We know there are multiplied people on the earth that are saved. The mind of God, that's what this parable is about. Jesus said, how think ye? After describing leaving 99 and going to find that one and searching for it. He says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven to leave one. God wants one. And if He finds one in a city, He may just save the entire city for the sake of that. pastor has said many times about people being on a job and the Lord blessing that place because of one of His people there. The mind of Jesus, if he knew he could find just one, he would leave the 99 in a safe place, he would go into harm's way and do what he could to bring out one Rahab, to bring out Lot, to bring out you. God knows where you live. If you, if you name the name of Christ, if you have the same testimony in your mouth that Rahab has. I know he's the God of heaven and earth. I know what he's going to do for you Israelites. He's going to give you this whole land. If you know his will, if you believe in him and you trust in him, there is a special mark on you. Revelation even talks about the people that are left after God's people are removed out of here. There are some people in Revelation that God still protects. Who are they? They have a seal on them. And they are sealed until they do their duty. At the end, those people lose their lives to to come see us, to be with us. But God looks out for those that have his name on them. He does. If you find yourself in a position, in a place where you feel like you're alone, you absolutely must rely on God, have faith in something, 
It's his nature. He looks for the people that have his testimony. And he does something special for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the things that we find in your word. And I pray that each one of us would be strengthened and encouraged. That we would be edified, Lord, in our spirit. I pray that each one of us would grow stronger in our relationship with you, our desire to read the word. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would allow the word to speak to us at home, at work, on the road. Let your word speak to our hearts. Father, be with Pastor and Tiff. Bring them back home safe. In Jesus' name, amen.